Well, good morning. Let's try this Aggie style. Howdy! So glad to be here. My name is Kevin Barra, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church. I'm mainly at the Anderson campus, and so if I haven't ever seen you before, uh, welcome to me. Okay, so glad to, to meet you. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 and 4 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can flip there. I'm going to read two sections for us, and then we will jump into it this morning. Acts chapter 3 and part of Acts chapter 4. If you've been with us, we've been jumping around in the book of Acts, um, studying it together, and uh, we are continuing that journey. So glad you're here this morning. Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read a couple verses from here, and then I'm going to read a couple verses from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they daily laid, or laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms from those entering the temple. Now seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Jump to chapter 4, starting in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were high priestly of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, And to you, all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Great introduction. I was so thankful for Blake for, for giving me this softball of a passage to me because uh, I remember one time I filled in for them and I had, to, uh, I had to speak on the basically the phone book at the end of Romans, you know, just like all the shout-out section at the end of it. And I'm like, oh, how do I do that? This is a good one. I'm excited about this. All the Bible's good, but some are, are more fun than others. I don't know. Maybe you've experienced that. And the center of this, if there's one major theme throughout this entire section I want to highlight, it's this, that there is no other name. If there was one title to give these two sections of chapters that we're going to look at today, it's this. There is no other name, and truly there is no greater name. And in order to really illustrate this well, we have to go back, way back, to a place that would probably surprise you, and it's Romeo and Juliet, a little Shakespeare for you. I know you knew that was coming here. But if you're familiar at all with Romeo and Juliet, you had to read in high school, that was a pain for you, but... 
But it is one of the greatest like, romances our, our world has ever kind of produced, and it's, and it's a theme that's recycled over and over again. I see head shaking, no, but, but it's because guys, you don't know. Girls are going, yes, it is. Okay, so, so in this moment, you, you see the beginning of these two people, and they're basically star-crossed lovers, right? So the, the girl loves the guy, the guy loves the girl, but there's a tension at the beginning of, of the play, and it's this. They each have the wrong name. They're from two opposing families, and each family represents something different, and that name that each one has, whether it's Montague or Capulet, has something within them that has been a rivalry, that's been a problem in their relationship from the beginning. And now, Romeo and Juliet inherited these names, and they've also inherited these problems. And at one point at the beginning of the play, Juliet says, laments, and this is probably the most famous line, Romeo, O Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. If not, will not be sworn my love. I shall no longer be a Capulet. She's like, I will punt on my name if you will punt on your name, and we can do this. And Romeo is eavesdropping in the garden, right? He snuck in there, and he's kind of listening in, doing what guys do, right? And he's like, should I leave? No, I want to keep on listening to this. And she goes... "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself not a Montague. What's Montague? It's either hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. O be thy some other name. What is a name? That That which is a rose called by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain thy dear perfection which he owes. Without the title, Romeo, doff thy name." And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself, right? And you're just like, oh, Julia, that's profound and amazing. But to a spoiler alert, they commit suicide at the end of the play, right? It's not a happy ending to a, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and the truth is, something that Juliet may be missing, sometimes we miss this, or, is this, that a name is more than just a title, See, every name carries content. There's information behind the name that the name represents. It's more than just letters on a page or syllables we express. A name carries something deeper beyond it. See, it's not the letters that they represent. And we, as a culture, if we can become united with the right name, we think that that name would give us what we most need. So a couple of examples. This. It's one image. You don't even see the name of the company, but immediately you know that name means something, Apple. And so for some of you, that name means quality. You know you can get a quality product from, or from if you buy an Apple product. But for others of you, it's more than just the name. It's, it's, what, it's what the name gives you. You get the newest iPhone, not because of primarily quality, it's status. And a lot of our products are not just about the quality, but the status that it gives us. Here's one store that has made a lot of money on this. I didn't even know what the store was called. And there's like 30 pronunciations for this. It's Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton. You've got your own little way. But regardless, when you see that LV, you know that not only do you get a great handbag, you get status, Right? Gucci has also made this. You can be this hot young man with your Gucci glasses <laughs> if you so desire. 
And so names are, 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 are something that, that are behind a product, and they give us more than just the content of the, of, of the name. It's, it's what's behind the name that matters most. It's significance, it's status, it's quality. And if we want someone to promote our product, all we need to do is get the right person to wear our Rolex watch, and suddenly the right person, Roger Federer, oh, you beautiful man, you, behind this product suddenly enhances what it, what it means, what it represents. And no person did this greater in my time growing up than one individual, Michael Jordan. When I was about 10 years old in 1990-ish, you can do the math on that, people, um, I was playing basketball. And it was kind of my first season to really play basketball on a team. My dad kind of held me out until that, until he was ready for me to go for it. And I said, okay, dad, but I got to get the right shoes. You know what I'm saying? And I had to get a pair of Nike Air Jordans with the number 23. I remember walking into the store and I knew that if I could just slip those on my feet, I would fly. (laughs) This name that is on this brand would not only be the thing that met my deepest need, it would enhance my performance, it would make me awesome, I would be amazing, I would be in the NBA. All I needed was to be backed by the right name. Needless to say, it didn't happen, right? But all of us, we know that if we can get the right name behind us, it will enhance our status it will, give us, it will show that our product is quality. The right name carries a lot of weight in our culture. But what I want to tell you this morning is this, that there is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no name that will meet your deepest need. There is no greater name that has shaped history like the name of Jesus Christ. And there is no greater name in which you can base your greatest hopes than on the name of Jesus Christ. And so at the beginning of this section, what we have is a moment when Peter highlights the name that matters most. And in, the, in Luke, in his writing of Acts, what he did in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is he talked about the apostles. And as we've been studying the book of Acts, uh, the, the, the apostles have been exploding in popularity. Tongues of fire came down, people are speaking in tongues, people are hearing the gospel in their own language, and 3,000 people come to faith in a single day. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 43, it says, all the people were coming together, and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they were listening to what the apostles were saying, and miracles were being done and performed. And in this moment in chapter 3, Luke takes a moment to highlight one of those miracles, And the first thing we see about this name is this, that there is no other name that heals. And so the story opens up with Peter and John, and they're going into the temple at the hour of prayer, and it's about the ninth hour. There was a couple different hours where people would come and offer sacrifices at the temple or offer gifts to the temple. And and the church is very, at the very beginning point, is just the starting point of the church. And these two men are going in and offering worship and prayer at the temple. And as they're walking in, they come to the gate that's called the beautiful gate, it says in verse 3. Now, it's one of three entrances to the temple. The temple had three beautiful, huge gates that people would walk into in order to go into the temple and offer their sacrifices. This is probably near the court of women. 
one of the most beautiful, highly decorated gates. And there's a man sitting there. And as he's sitting there, he's asking for alms of the people entering the temple. And it says, seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive some alms. At the end of chapter 4, or verse 4, chapter 4, verse 22, it says that this man had been lame for about 40 years. And so each day, his family would carry this man to this place and lay him down to beg. He was a beggar. He's a beggar that had been coming day after day for 40 years of his life. So often did this man come that everyone recognized him. Everyone knew him. He was, he was the beggar that was at the front of the temple. I mean, everyone recognized this guy as they were walking through, and, and he was just hoping that someone would give him something. He was an older man, and he was simply a man in need. And the truth is this. We all have needs in this room. Every one of us has some sort of need that you've come here with this morning. Some of you have financial needs. You need money to pay the bills or to pay for your college education, right? Or you've got emotional needs for friendship or significance. Or you have physical needs. Some of you are literally coming here sick. There's issues that are going on in your heart, issues that are going on in your mind, or issues that are going on in your body that need to be met, and every one of us comes here with needs. And what's so interesting in our culture is that we look for something to meet the need, some name to give us what we most need. And so some of us are looking for a job, right? For some of you, like the job is the thing that will meet your need. Your need is financial, and you need a job to complete it. But what's so interesting is that jobs are not just at the level of financial satisfaction anymore. I've been reading several books recently about the search for employment and, and how people are talking about jobs and employment. And one writer writes this. He says, your work is your contribution to the world. And the truth is, work is sought not just to meet the financial needs but deep emotional needs. And suddenly your job isn't just about paying the bills, it's about defining who you are. Or you have a relational need, and maybe you need a new relationship, right? You've walked in here, you just broke up with her, or maybe your marriage is on the rocks. And we use phrases like this, this relationship isn't working. And what do we mean by that? What we mean is I have a need and this thing isn't meeting my need and what I really need is someone to complete me. Thank you, Jerry Maguire in the 90s. We've got a lot of 90s references here, people. Um, or lastly, some of us even look to religion to meet our need. It's funny, I've been, I've been talking with uh, friends recently and, and a lot of them are not believers or just kind of really on the, the front end of, of faith. And a, a common theme comes across from all of them. They say this, I need something like faith. And it's almost like they believe that, that if they had this religion thing, it would meet these other needs that they really have. And so I need either a job or a relationship or faith or something to meet this need that I have. And the truth is this, this man had a need and he was looking for something to meet his need. And his thought was financial. Just drop some coins in my hand and meet my need. But you know what this man didn't expect? This man didn't expect the gift that Peter would give him. He thought the only thing that he really needed to meet his need was just a couple of coins in his hand. But Peter is going to rock his world by the gift that he gives. In verse 4, it says, Peter 
directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them and expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I'll give to you. Which, if you're that guy that feels anticlimactic, right? You're like, I kind of wanted silver, silver or gold. Um, what are you going to give me? And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You see, this man wanted a temp, a tip. He got a triumph. His whole life he was a victim, and now he was a victor. His whole life he had been a beggar for 40 years, and at this moment his ankles were made strong, and he rises up. What would you do in that moment? When you just wanted a couple things to meet a need that you had, and suddenly you got something beyond anything you could expect. What's your response? This man danced, okay? That's awesome. That would probably be your stance. It says he leapt up, right? Verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entering the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. <clears throat> 80s reference. Thank you, uh, Kevin Bacon, for bringing that to our attention. Walking and leaping and praising God and recognizing him all at, all at once, everyone saw him, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I mean, everyone's looking at this guy and going, how did this happen? Everyone knew this guy, but no one expected this. And what's interesting is that every triumph has a tale, right? Every great story has a story behind the story. And at this moment, everyone's looking at them and going, okay, how did this happen? It's the same question on everyone's mind. How did this happen? And really, in our culture, we have two major tales, two major narratives that we go to to explain why something great happened. See, uh, every football game, if you, go to, if you watch a football game, you watch the, en- the end of the game, two things happen. Someone loses and someone wins. And every reporter, after every interview, asks one question. What did you do to win? Or, what did you do to lose? Right? Reporting's easy. Right? I'm just joking. It's actually very, very challenging. But that's the question. What caused this triumph? Or what caused this tragedy? And everyone's seeing a guy who just got healed, and they're going, how did this happen? And our culture looks for two narratives that explain why great things happen in the lives of people. We have two narratives, and the first one is this, that everyone has needs, but we believe that we have either faith in our strength or the strength of our faith that will save us. Our two cultural narratives really hinge on these two ideas. Why have you been healed? Why have you been helped? Why have you gotten through the struggle that you were in? Why are you a triumph and and not a victim anymore? Well, it's either faith in your strength or the strength of your faith. The faith in your strength is basically this. It's the external abilities that you have. And to prove this point, uh, really, all of these are centered on one theme that our culture tells one another that we hold as gospel, as true, and it's this. Believe in yourself. 
And the funny thing is, is, is if you really want to get to the heart of deep cultural, intellectual problems and questions, there's only one real place to go. In fact, any problem you have, there's only one real place to go. Pinterest, right? <laughs> you need to know how to make, bake some cookies, uh, make a craft, or to figure out deep sociological dilemmas. Uh, Pinterest, right? And so I went there. And here's one quote. It says, believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. With, with a humble but reasonable confidence in your own power, you cannot be successful or happy. Believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, you'll never be successful or happy. Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe has said the same thing. She says this, just because you fail once doesn't mean you're going to fail at everything. Keep trying. Hold on. And always, always, always believe in yourself. There's our mantra. Because if you don't, then who will? Hey, you believe in you. You believe in your abilities to accomplish great things, and you can solve the deepest problems that you have. Or we look at our internal ability. Here's one quote from a, a famous thinker, Christian um, DeLarson. Believe in yourself. Know that there is something inside of you that is greater than any obstacle. What is that internal thing? I don't know. But it's greater than any obstacle. The third, from Emerson. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. You see, the, the, the mantra... The belief that of our entire culture is this. There's something on the inside of you that will meet your deepest needs. Something in here that you just have to release. And then all of your problems will be solved. What's so interesting is that that is the exact opposite of what Peter points to. Jump to verse 11. Peter says this. While he clung to Peter and John, and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though through our own power, the strength, faith in our strength, or our own piety, the strength of our faith has made him walk. Why do you look at us as if we pulled this off? This isn't me. This isn't him. What made this man walk? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we witness. And by his name, and by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health. You see, healing didn't come from the inside. It came from the outside. It was an external person that brought healing to this person. See, the need that this man had was only met by someone far beyond him who came near to him. And Peter, at this moment, looks at the religious leaders and says, look, 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 this guy walked on earth. He was the author of life, and his name brought healing. And this miracle, this moment, is meant to highlight one thing in particular, the name of that man. See, oftentimes when we see miracles 
in the Bible, we think it's primarily about highlighting the miracle. But the miracle isn't the most significant thing. The miracle is a means to open the door to the person. The miracle merely highlights the person who can solve the deepest need. The miracle was opening the door that, so that everyone can see the power of the person of Jesus Christ and that he is the, alone the one that can heal. One author named Charles Sell says it this way. If our greatest need had been information, God would have given us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But if our greatest need is forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. See, this is so significant. Because God sent what we most needed to meet our deepest need, and there's no other name on earth that will heal you. There's no other name that will meet the needs that you have in life. It's not a job, it's not a relationship, it's not, a per, it's not some person out there, it's not some activity you can be involved in. You have needs. You need to go to the right source to meet those needs. And the reason this is so significant is because of the turn that Peter takes next. You see, if, if Peter's primary goal at this moment was to talk about healing and a healing ministry, here's what, here's what, here's what Peter would have done. If that was Peter's primary motivation. What he, would, what he would have said is, look, here, there's 10 steps that you can take to heal all of your problems. They'll fit nicely into a 10-chapter book, about 200 pages. You can buy the book on the way out, and you can read it and solve all of your deepest needs, all your deepest problems. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he does something very odd. He turns and starts giving them a history lesson. Isn't that crazy? He turns and starts talking about the history of the nation. Look at me in verse chapter 3, starting in verse 19, 17. It says, And we know, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He points them to the history of the prophets coming and talking about this man, Jesus. He gives them a history lesson, which seems very odd, especially in our culture. Because we're not consumed with the newest, we're cons- or the oldest, we're concerned with the newest. We love the newest technology, the newest phone, the newest research, what's just been brought up about medicine or whatever else, or the latest insight. And in our culture, in our world, we, we assume that the newest is the bestest, right? That's the way that we think. If it's newer, it's better. But what C.S. Lewis would say of that is this, that we are victims of of historical snobbery. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, and he says it's the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account alone discredited. You see, we often forget our history. We don't remember bands of the 80s, right? That was the lost decade of music, right? And we don't care. We don't care about the past. What we care about is the present, But that's not true for the nation of Israel. See, they were a people stooped in their history. It was their history that exposed and explained their present. It was was what they had gone through that gave them significance to the place where they are. And so Peter knew this, and so he launched into their history. He says, we know about Jesus. You acted in ignorance. And then jump down to verse 22 of chapter 3. 
He says this, Now Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. And whatever he tells you, and it is said at that point, every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed by the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him all proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God has made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised him up, raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There's three major highlights that Peter makes in this section to prove that Jesus is the greatest name in history. There is no greater name. He points to three places, and the first is is Moses. Moses was their greatest prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, it says, there's been no prophet that has arisen like Moses who spoke to God face to face. And then he references the rest of the prophets. In Isaiah, it talks about one that would come that would restore all things, a, a rescuer that would also be a suffering servant. And he went all the way back to Abraham, the OJ, the original Jew, right? Bad joke. I know, boomy. Went all the way back to Abraham. Sorry, people. Um, and he says, it was promised to him that through him, everyone would be blessed. And he takes them on a tour de history to show him this man is what every one of your Every one of your forefathers has been talking about. Everyone's been talking about this man's moment in history, and we finally got his name. He's right here. But once again, in our culture, that doesn't, that doesn't win the day for us. We would say, that's great that, that you talked about Jesus throughout, throughout all of history. That's, that's very exciting. But we're more concerned about the present than the past. And we're more concerned about the potential than even our present. And what we look at, more, what's more impressive to us is impact, not history. And so I, I was reading an, an article in Fortune magazine about the impact of Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was probably the most significant athlete that has ever lived. The, uh, Rick Welts, the NBA executive vice president, said this of Michael Jordan. If Michael leaves, this is, he said this in 1998, he, has, he leaves having changed everything. The public's view of the role of ath- that athletes can play in society, how they can be viewed, how, how they can be used by corporations, how they can be social icons. He also leaves the sports business a fundamentally different industry from the one he came into. How you figure out how he benefits the industry and the industry's growth from what he's contributed, that's a question for the ages. But Fortune magazine tried to answer that question. What is the financial impact that Michael Jordan had on the NBA? They tried to figure it out. And so they looked at his income. They looked at money he brought in to the Bulls organization. They looked at money he brought to the NBA with TV uh, input and everything. They looked at his impact across the organization. They said, roughly, as of 1998, it was about a $10 billion impact by one person. That's huge. And that's why that NBA executive said, look, this guy has changed the game completely. 
And if we look at the impact of an individual, suddenly that's, why we, that's where we attribute greatness. But when it comes to the person of Jesus, you should apply the same principle. H.G. Wells, historian, says this of Jesus. I'm a historian, I'm not a believer. But I confess that as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Not a believer. A historian. But diplomats say the same thing. In fact, dictators say the same thing. Napoleon Bonaparte said this. You speak of Caesar, of Alexander, of their conquests and of their enthusiasm, which they which having kindled the hearts of their soldiers. But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful, entirely devoted to his memory? My armies have forgotten me while I'm still living. As the, as the Carthinian, um, Carthinian army has forgotten Hannibal, such is our power. I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have found empires. But on what did we rest our creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. I search in vain to find similar to Jesus Christ, or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor ages, nor nature offer me anything which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. There was no impact like the life of this obscure carpenter who walked three years in the public eye. Time Magazine made a similar statement, and for time's sake I will not read it to you, But in each moment, we see that this man impacted history like no other. He changed the world. But why should you believe in him? He's the only one that can heal you. He has shaped history like no other. And it's in him alone that you can hope. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get arrested. And they're brought before a council. And as they stand before that council, the next day, verse 5, it says that the rulers and scribes gathered together. And they asked them, how did you pull this off? And Peter, in that moment, says, I want to be clear. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands well before you. And he goes on to say, the name of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. He says, everything has been culminating to this person. He is the center of history, and he is the only one that can save. What does he mean by that? Save from what? Well, earlier on, it was in a passage I skipped. Peter says this in chapter 3, verse 19. As he's preaching to the Jews, he says this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. He says there's two things that Jesus is going to save us from. There's going to be refreshing and restoring of everything. Why is he the greatest hope? Because only he can refresh and restore you. What's refreshing? It's like a fresh breath of air. What's restoring? is to put everything back to the way that it should be. He says, Jesus is going to do that. If you have any hope, hope in this, that he will come and put everything back to the way it should be. C.S. Lewis uh, was a phenomenal author. If you don't know him, shame on you um, as a Christian. (laughs) And and he wrote a book talking about why he wrote the stories the way that he did. And in particular, he highlighted fairy and fantasy stories. He said, look, everyone knows that, that... that you need to continue to write children or books, especially to children, let them have heroes in it. Let them have something to give people life. And he writes this. He says, Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. And what C.S. Lewis strikes is, is, is something that's true is that when you talk to little kids, they want to see a hero, but they're also afraid. I've got three little kids, a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and a two-year-old son. And every time I get home from work, they say, you're the bad guy, and they go get swords that I bought them and come and attack me. (laughs) Welcome home, daddy, right? And as they attack me with the swords, I grab them up and I throw them on the couch and I grab them up and throw them on the couch. They escape, they run away and they grab them and take them on the couch and they go, okay, okay, let me kill you. And I'm like, who raised these children, right? <laughs> and they kind of stab me and I play dead and, and over and over and over again, they start wearing these costumes, right? My two-year-old son named Jesse won't go anywhere without a cape. Why? Because it can be a dangerous world. And this little cape and this little sword will help him fight the enemy. J.R.R. Tolkien says says it this way in a a book that he wrote called On Fairy Stories. He says, every one of us longs for five things from a story. We want to have love without parting. We want to get outside of time altogether. We want to escape death. We want to hold communion with non-human beings And we want good to triumph over evil. And every story you hear is a story about a rescuer who comes to restore. A hero who steps in and puts everything back to the way that it always should be. It's why you go watch the movies you watch. You see, for a long time, there was the thought that that fantasy fiction, those types of stories would go out of style and out of vogue. But if you look right now at what what we pay billions of dollars to the blockbuster, it's all movies like Avengers or Ant-Man, right? They're not realistic. (laughs) But we love to watch a hero win. And Josh, Josh Whedon, the creator of those movies, says this. Somebody asked me if I had anything like faith. And I said, I have faith in the narrative. I have a belief in a narrative that is bigger than me 
that is alive and I trust will work itself out. At one point, Sarah Michelle Geller, uh, star of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer, another 90s reference, I'm sorry about that, people, um, said this, I once, I'm not sure where, this, where we're going with the storyline. And I said, you don't have to trust me, but trust the narrative, and we'll find our way back. See, Joss Whedon isn't a Christian, he's an atheist. But he knows that there's a storyline, that there is tragedy that will bring triumph. There is pain that will turn to joy. He says, if we just follow the storyline long enough, every one of us longs in our hearts for the victim to become the victor or for some rescuer to step in and restore everything to the way it should be. It's, it's almost like vertigo. Everyone wants it. It's why we watch the same movie and storyline over and over and over again. Ant-Man is not a movie that should have been made. But it strikes at the heart of what every one of us longs for. A rescuer to step in and restore what was broken. Tim Keller writes this of miracles, and he says this, We modern people think of miracles as suspensions of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it, but Jesus has come to redeem where it was wrong and to heal the world where it was broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. Jesus, there is no greater name. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that in all of our struggles and all of our longings for, for wholeness, for completeness, that you don't turn a blind eye to it, but you sent us the best that you have. The one who alone who can heal, the one who is the center of history, and the one who is the rescuer and restorer of everything, the person, Jesus Christ. And if there's someone this morning that has never put their faith alone in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to know the one who's going to restore all things, this morning may be the time for you to put your faith alone in the one who can save. For the rest of us, Lord, I I pray that this was a reminder. Sometimes we start chasing so many other things and we forget the simple, profound truth that there is no greater name. I lift up these people to you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great morning.